0: Uh, I'm going to read from a book that I collaborated uh, with my girlfriend Katrina on. Uh, She did the publication. I contributed the script. Um, It bears some explanation. I can only read four parts of it. There's six parts. uh, So, essentially, uh, it speaks around the periphery of a movie called Derby, a fictional movie. Uh, And I'm going to read from four parts. Uh, The first part is is a poem. The second part is an excerpt from a novel uh, upon which this movie would be based. The third part is a treatment of the film. Uh, The fourth part is uh, an excerpt from the script. And the fifth part is uh, a reading from the diary of the director. And the sixth part is uh, an essay. So pretty convoluted and out of context. It's going to be almost incomprehensible, but (laughs) you'll get through it, I'm sure. Okay. Part one, the flame of life. And this is taken from Text in the Shop Wall at Light's End Ranch by D. Kennedy from Into the Light, The Life and Trial of Daniel Kennedy by Charlie Grossman, published in Fort Worth by Cole Books in 1993. In the vernal time of man, there was a flatness to life and death. So we dragged our corpses along, plowing the acreage of chances past. We tired deep in the bone, in the frailty of a soft mental skin, We laid flat sculptures of bitumen in ornate patterns, laid them in our minds first. Inflamed the idea in chrome ovens. Speed made metal insensate. Will manifest in an ecstasy of commerce and conveyance. We spoke, and in our dreams became truer vehicles all, built of parts interwoven. Our hands carved jet streams a mile in the sky, drove the roads of light and vision into an endless, soundless west until death itself. Perished by our industry, and hydraulic in our strength, we supplanted God and, flat and fastened a, mat, a latch across the mouth of chance. Time was a children's toy after that, and the sunset was the same every night.
1: Oh, come! <laughs> <laughs>
0: now what remains is the pure ore of our endeavors, and what shall we do with it, my dears? Fasten your harness and hang your prisms like dice over the rearview mirror of time, for now all shall collide. Derby. Spooky. (laughs) Uh, Part two, entitled Cast Me Among Them, excerpt from the novel Terminals of Light by Daniel Kennedy from Echelon Books, published in Los Angeles, 1971. They had me tightly by both arms and I was carried down the corridor. I would only watch the experience, I must only observe, I told myself. I cannot associate with any fear that enters me. These are images flickering on the screen of my subconscious. They have only the reality I ascribe to them. All will be well. The corridor was long and purple dark, and I could barely make out Obligin's silhouette against the light he was leading us into. The women in white were emotionless and held me fast. When we came to the door, I saw the faint light had been emanating from a hooded stone above an oval passageway that looked like red drapery. Obligen peeled apart the red folds and we slipped into the room. Deeper and deeper, he led us. Still no light. Only now I was aware of an intense warmth all around me. My skin was perspiring vigorously and I could hear, faint in the distance, the sound of an engine turning over. Deeper and deeper into the claustrophobic heat. I felt like I'd been on my feet for a decade, when suddenly, the clutches around my arms released, and I looked around to find myself in a spherical, soft-red enclave with a cherry-red 1968 Ford Mustang gleaming immaculate in the center. There was nothing incandescent hanging in that room, but the car was beaming an angelic light. A man appeared. Come in.
1: (laughs) We walked around
0: slowly, and he put his hand on the trunk, big smiling teeth and a long black cloak. Would you like to see something? I am not living. I have no vestigial body, and I'm not afraid to look at images or observe any horror. You can show me whatever you like. I don't engage in reality. He opened the trunk, and there were live bodies. Nude. Their faces painted with grease. The patterns were endless. Elaborate, petaled insignias and soft, glowing universes and jewels and leaves jeweled with dew, with scenes from my childhood depicted in the oil smears beneath their eyes. They glowered at me, their bodies contorted into gnarled, erotic shapes. He closed the trunk and suddenly the red room was filled with guests. A party. Humans, (laughs) insects, and animals, all wearing the same slip, sipping at drinks languidly. Would you like to take a ride with us, he asked. (laughs) I nodded. He pointed to the chrome tailpipe. Put your mouth around it. (laughs) I did. I heard the car start, and my chest was filled with cool, fragrant smoke that seemed to exhale out of my eyes. An immediate and overmastering wave of euphoria came over me, like the very sky had descended and was coating me blue. Are you coming? he asked. I looked up from my ecstasy and saw the car filled with severed body parts. Get in, he said. Let's go for a drive. We're going to bury you in the earth. Part 3, The Identity Dilemma, excerpt from Treatment of Derby by Janice Wright. Logline, as his career winds down, a famous derby car driver is approached by a video artist to participate in a reincarnation experiment. (laughs) The year is 2068, in a world of car euphoria, of total penetrating surveillance, meet Robert Fairlane. He's a legend of the state-run derby circuit, a multi-sport event of gladiatorial prowess with automobiles. It airs every night on State Wave Band and the public can't get enough. Fairlane's celebrity is incalculable, but he's noticing his advantage starting to slip. Public favor is shifting. He lives the life of a bon vivant. He's arrogant, boisterous, megalomaniacal, violent, and totally hedonistic. His daily cocaine intake is astonishing. Fairlane is tired. We see him tired of his empty life of pleasure hunting. We see him disillusioned with the broken world he thrives on and the broken people who eat from its lower tables. We see him physically worn out by the Derby. Act One introduces us to Fairlane in action. We see him basking in the pandemonium and carnage of the Derby show. He loves his sport and he's clearly very capable. We see the stadium ablaze with fervor. We see the condition of the people, their abject poverty and their bloodlust. Fairlane's signature car, Beatrice, Is a cherry red 1968 Ford Mustang. He drives a new one every night, sometimes a new car between intermissions. The derby is highly staged. There's a warehouse beneath the arena that holds every destroyed wreck and every upcoming new car, and they spread out in the thousands. He sees the current of time, as each night an immaculate Beatrice is replaced in the warehouse by a wrecked one. There seems to be substantially more wrecks. We are introduced to the power structure that Fairly needs to pander to outside the arena, the people who pay his salary, rig the races, and keep him in stardom. He knows he's coming to the end of his career, and he can sense them plotting his destruction. He wants out, but he doesn't know what to do. He confides in his drunk friends during the long, chattering nights he spends partying after a performance. He used to consider himself an athlete, now he calls himself an actor. <laughs> There is a new young star upcoming in the ranks. Fairlane sees him being groomed just as he was a decade earlier. A lot of media attention, the warmth of the executive, glamorous new opportunities, and a signature car. One day he is approached by his longtime promoter to fight in a battle royale with the kid. We'll never see the back of this man's massive face. In his deep and reassuring voice, he tells Fairlane that he will win the match. The kid has agreed to take a fall in the shotgun race. Fairlane knows they mean this to be the end of his fall from fame. The kid is going to take the match. Maybe they mean this to be his death. Fairlane senses the rig. Hitting the wall of his depression that night, Fairlane coax himself to smithereens, eats a pile of lewds and drinks a bottle of vodka, no company this time. (laughs) The next day, his valet wakes him to say there's a very illustrious visitor on the compound. He lives in a massive oceanfront compound, horses, helicopters, a sp- substantial car museum. Uh, Fairlane's hangover feels like a bonfire of cancers in his head. When he asks who the fuck it is and why the fuck he should see a guest in his condition, his valet tells him it's Pharaoh Kennedy, the video artist. Fairlane laughs and, despite his mind shattering headache, gladly admits the guest. Fairlane, naked, doesn't rise in the bed or bother putting on clothes. He simply remains lying face down atop his black satin sheets. The pharaoh is shown to his bedside. They greet. Fairlane, playing the facetious the whole time, the pharaoh is immaculate. He wears a black cloak of extremely fine linen. His white hair stands on end, and around his neck, a pair of thick red-framed glasses hang on a rope. His eyes are boogie. <laughs> He explains to Fairlane that he's been watching him for some time, and he sympathizes with his predicament. He knows what it's like to have the people who bolstered you up now try to muscle your career into its twilight. Fairlane scoffs, but the pharaoh pursues. He offers Fairlane a dignified exit from his sport, perhaps a new limb to the sprawling tree of his stardom. Intrigued, but feigning indifference, Fairlane prods him on lazily, scratching his bare ass. His, not the Pharaoh's, obviously. <laughs> uh, the Pharaoh has been interested in reincarnation for some time. His interests are not personal or remunerative, but more of a fascination with the event as medium. He says there's no other ego more bloated or diseased than that of Robert Fairlane, derbyist. It demands a repeat. He wants to stage a reincarnation of Robert in a public setting. He would, like to, would he like to join and be immortally famous? Fairlane agrees, chuckling, still prone on the bed. The Pharaoh stands and walks to the door in which he entered and opens it to reveal an abyss of tall grass protracting out to the horizon of a peach-pink sky. Then come meet your public, he says. Act two begins when a mystified Fairlane stands and follows Kennedy through the door into this inexplicable magic trick. As he passes the threshold, the door closes behind him and he turns around to a continuity of tall grasses swaying in the wind. No Kennedy and no home in sight. He is naked. Extremely perturbed, Fairlane repeatedly screams Kennedy's name and after no response begins to walk through the sprawling landscape swatting at the grass. The color in the sky is utterly static, like a painted backdrop, but luminous and damp enough to know it's more than a reproduction. After a long walk to a nearby hill that reveals the true infinity of the land, he sees far off in the clearing on a small patch of mowed grass, what looks to be a disassembled car. Fairlane heads in that direction and discovers a 1968 cherry red Ford Mustang stripped completely to parts, all of which are splayed out neatly on white canvas sheets. He notices the chassis of the car is mounted on a lift, and besides this is a complete mechanic's tool set, hydraulics and all, along with gloves, a welding helmet, and a pair of green coveralls, which the stark naked Fairlane promptly puts on. Meanwhile, in a bone white gallery with bare walls, there is a woman with a shawl threaded through her arms, standing in the center of the room, wearing a mask with a freakish depiction of Fairlane's face. People with glasses of wine are congregating and waiting their turn to try on the face. <laughs> in a close-up, we see, the w- we see the woman's eyes lit up by a projection from inside the mass, and from the reflection in her pupils, we see the POV of someone reassembling a car in a field of long grass. The show is called Derbiest. In the corner of the room, Farrell Kennedy is having a hushed conversation with a bearded man in a very fine suit. Skipping ahead to part five. Reality was only a habit. And this is a journal sample of Derby Days, taken from the book *Elsewhereing: The Onset Journals of Harding Bell, edited by Oliver Berry and published by Chevalier in New York in 2014. April 23rd. Gorgeous morning. Woke at 4 a.m. and walked the field. Feel newborn. Listen to birdsong and watch the fragile new light dappled on the reeds. This location is precise. Got me all kinds of touched. (laughs) Not going to waste anything. We'll compete with time for each moment. April 24th. Woke at 4 again and arranged the day ahead like chess moves. Have taken to meditating an hour before breakfast. Rereading Sculpting in Time and the Grossman biography on Kennedy. What a specimen. (laughs) I often have a feeling of physical revulsion as I read, Daddy, like. Might bother Diane for some Dramamine. They say marijuana can cure nausea. It seems to induce it in my case. Wanted to see about bringing Grossman on set. Paul's trying. Very tired today. Body feeling like a piece of lasagna that's been left out in the sun. (laughs) April 25th. Been attempting lucid dreaming with no success, have yet to hear, am I dreaming, during my sleeping visions. When I test reality, the clock should read as a glyph, or I should never return to the ground, or creases in my hands should become riverlets. I had a dream this aft, a very Fairlanian dream. I was in a derby and trying to smash other cars, but couldn't hit anyone. Every Every move was accommodated for by the other drivers. All force was nullified, like a school of fish, we moved in unison. Was a peaceful, (laughs) slow dance. Couldn't hear any engines. Woke on set, and when I came to, called Paul over and punched him in the arm. Needed to purge the lassitude. He laughed and slapped my back like I was a redeemable person. (coughs) Eighteen hours. April 6th. Rain. Played poker with crew. Used pennies. Lost. (laughs) (laughs) Mike wore his liquor in the front, poker in the rear shirt. Worried about crew boredom. April 27th. Still no word from Grossman, but I'm appreciating this book again. That's loud. The photos of the mothers remind me of of the tanks in Stalker. They really have an essence, and there is something strangely maternal about them all. Kennedy was convinced he had made real conduits for the generative force, that under their supervision he he could conduct his way through cycles and land his psyche in a new body. I wonder, wonder, wonder about the day-to-day at light's end. What was breakfast like? What was Kennedy like in the morning? Who got preferential treatment? I would trade a season in hell for an extended shot of their faces while he gave an evening sermon. Was it all a culture of fear and suspicion, or did they feel at all like a community? Grossman thinks they believed they were living around a demigod and mostly lived lives of subservient petrifaction. April 28. To Kennedy, Welding was the ritualized gesture of mankind's desire to bind with nature. A searing, white-hot intelligence that binds two irreconcilables with the immensity of its heat. The result being a join that fails with the application of the right force or more heat. We can only make temporary sutures, and even the cleanest bind betrays the attempt. As members would progress in their practice, he would begin to graft pieces of their fitted body suits to the mothers. When they failed or lapsed or disappointed their practice, as he put it, they would have to dismantle a piece of their suit from the mothers in front, the, uh, in front of the whole flock. It was deeply humiliating. April 29th. Yes to life is default. It's the no that requires action. Easier to live. 16 hours. May 3rd. Weather may not cooperate. Location shooting was good discipline. Gonna watch Running Man with the whole cast. According to Grossman, when Kennedy was given a DVD player in his cell, the only films he requested were The Running Man and Uncle Boonmay, who can recall his past lives, (laughs) both of which he watched every day until he was called 12 hours. May 4th, it's outside, it's inside, it balances like this, but each visit taints the other like a native speaker, occasionally using foreign words. Two languages bled over top of one another. Does interior determine exterior or vice versa? I'm sick of the tedium. Too much logistic, too much input, too much gear, too many people to answer to, too many people to instruct, too much at stake, too little forgiveness. Something simple, plain, solitary, and inexpensive is preferable. Studio can't come soon enough, it's all flies and whining out here, fuck the outdoors. (laughs) May 5th, Grossman visited set today. Paul said we couldn't afford to pay, so I had to be artful, fat, as I expected, which is perfect for his name. There's something about the biographers of The Criminally Insane, I swear it's an archetype. He's articulate on Kennedy and agrees with me that he was the most aesthetically sensitive of our modern serial killers slash cult leaders. We talked about the mothers and he smiled condescendingly at my theories. Why is fat smug more irritating? We had lunch and I saw him hesitate about the second portion, so I dragged him to get it, which he did to my endless satisfaction. I complimented him on his book, which was sincere. Then he left in the afternoon with a handshake, one free consultation. May 6th. Damn broke in my head last night. Newfound appreciation for The Running Man. It's one of the few dystopias that doesn't overdesign its future. Nearly all the accoutrements unabashedly late 80s, uh, set in 2017. While this seems to be unavoidable and incidental in most movies, such limited imaginations we have, we can only reconstitute what we already know, In The Running Man, it has been embraced. Telephones with cords, Adidas tracksuits, elliptical exercise machines, Venetian blinds, dirty coveralls, trucker hats, chalkboards, crappy TVs. Very uh, Very little attempt to look futuristic. I was floored. Anachronisms from the Greek ana plus chronos against time rarely go the other way. It's a goddamn achievement. Derby must aspire to these heights. May 8, two hours of sleep. Felt energized all day, been eating tiny meals frequently. According to Grossman, this was Kennedy's diet.
2: Ha!
0: <laughs> Hunger was good discipline. From the Latin, discipulus, student, disciple. I sense his presence here, little daemon on my shoulder. May 9th, been browsing a Henry Ford bio before bed. His son and supposed successor was a sensitive Ted, one of the biggest art benefactors in Detroit history commissioned Diego Rivera's Detroit industry. Old man Ford thought the boy effeminate, Ed's soul. Deliberately embarrassed him in public, disagreed constantly, ran him through the gears, thought it would make the boy hard. Boy dies of cancer at 49, didn't even outlast the old hawk. Built Ford tough. (laughs) May 11th. Ran Mary to tears today. Felt sick, but she seems to only respect antagonism. Thought of Kubrick whittling away at Shelley Duvall. She looked so frail and depleted in that film. I think some of the Kennedy is rubbing off. I find myself using his skullduggery more and more. 16 hours. May 16th. Destiny parted the clouds and handed me Derby Day. Close them again. Shoot immaculate. Ominous systems spreading behind the miasma of the stadium. Deep dark blues and nimbuses in heroic anger. uh, Rory looks fierce in that machine. Woke this morning absolutely purposed on the warpath. His stare was utterly penetrating. Rushes are encouraging. 20 plus hours. May 18th. Asked Janine if I could have a smoke already grabbing at her pack. Fill your boots, she says. I love that townie shit. Quietly wishing to die today. Shot most of the (laughs) B-roll. Might get drunk alone. What am I doing? (laughs) May 28th. Polly called the set Carnia today, chuckles. I said no to t-shirts. May 29. Nancy Smith, the only one with a suit on the mother's. Kennedy called her Lotus Bloom, and she was exempt from all labor. When they stormed the ranch, they found her sitting in the middle of the statue, surrounded by the entombed carcasses of her cohort. She was courted for years by journalists looking for a tell-all, and Grossman too, but she never spoke of, even in court. Mom, I think he was still in her head, 16 hours. May 29th, no one ever talks about the torture of privacy. In a world of total interior and exterior surveillance where nothing could be hidden, wouldn't things like dishonesty and shame become irrelevant? Complicity with surveillance must be us quietly missing the omniscient presence to want that thing that we can't hide anything from. Can God be reincarnated? We ask it every day. Loneliness is unraveling the garment. Privacy is dying and we privately think it good. June 1, Paul says collector is pulled out on the car, wants to show at Barrett Jackson or whatever the fuck. Gotta find a new Mustang. Things like this are beyond agitating me now. I just feel a momentum forcing the days along in a predetermined pattern. It was intended for us to lose that perfect vehicular specimen. Like all of creation has fulfilled its purpose in this trite detail. Paul's hunting me another sting. Day off. June five. Tried a Kennedy maneuver on Rory. He's lovely as a body, but he's purely physical. He's dancer present, way too connected. So I've started ignoring him. I won't even meet his gaze. I just stare past his ears indifferently, while being pointedly gentle and affable around others. It seems to be working. He's starting to unravel a little bit, happily. Fairling is not graceful and steady. He's a fractured persona, an ego-swollen ghoul. I want to see a crack rictus across that handsome face. Show me a wrathful junkie. Paul got me my Mustang today. It's a jewel. Twelve hours. June 9th. Ready to retire. Nervous system collapsed. Need to sleep? Sundown was a doozy this eve. Like she knew we were leaving and said a proper goodbye. Thrust reds and blushes of molten amber and clouds bursting into flames. Ocean of grass shimmering beneath, a complete conversation. Night appears like a broom and the color apostrophe is swept away. June 10th. Wrapped, then slept. First truly lucid dream. I had to help Hank Williams Sr. mow his lawn. No matter how I struggle and strive, I'll never get out of this world alive. Thank you.
2: Icelander. Although her plane was delayed, when Kay arrived at Charlotte's house, it was still early enough to go to a show in which one of Charlotte's friends was playing. After rinsing in the shower to freshen up, Kay was informed by Charlotte that they'd miss set but should go to the club anyways. They parked in a brightly lit lot behind the venue. Outside, a group of well-dressed people in black conversed and smoked. These are the people she would meet, of course. Her first time to this corner of the city might even be intoxicating. This was her expectation, thinking then what a warm night it was still from the heat of the day. But this neighborhood was rather quiet. The small businesses with Korean signage had been tucked in by metal shutters only. The convenience store selling alcohol closed half an hour ago. These once mean streets, imbued with an east-meets-west sense of fun, had a curfew of 10 p.m. The two women entered into a dark room where a man was reverberating into beer bottles and looping the sound over spasmodic turtles. This he played back on cassette. The effect was a sound that was both peeling and blurry. When he finished his set, the man in a Germanic accent addressed the back of the room. Is Gunnar still here? He's outside smoking, someone answered. A tall man, bald and dressed in a suit, made his way through the crowded room toward the stage and raising his hand in salutation, stood before the audience. I'm here, but I don't think there's time left in the evening for another performance. Don't be modest, Gunnar, the man with the accent responded friends. It's a special treat to welcome Gunnar to our community. He is an old friend and very talented musician who rarely visits LA. In my younger days, the stuff he was playing in the 80s totally blew our minds. Gunnar seemed irritated by this introduction, but conceded to it. His charm and civility apparent traced through his movements as he surveyed the sound equipment on the stage. If he intended to use it to play something, he must have changed his mind then, as he dropped his head briefly and smiled, and after a short pause, crossed his arms to stare out at the room of stern but attentive young people. I am not a song and dance man. The audience considered the statement with skepticism. He pulled a book out of his jacket pocket as if he was about to read from it, but changed his mind again and set the book down on the chair. The audience laughed uncomfortably, perhaps wishing these dramatics wouldn't last long. He then removed his jacket, placing it over the book to roll up his sleeves of his dress shirt by first unbuttoning the cuffs and folding the fabric at the middle of his forearm. Folded it again, fully compressing each pleat with forefinger and thumb. The folds which lay with relaxed authority on his tanned forearms glittered with specks of blonde hair as he gestured towards those closest to the stage to join hands. He encouraged everyone to form a circle and follow suit. In a soft voice, he announced that he would lead them in a prayer. Charlotte. Things have kind of blown up over here, so I think the best thing for me to do right now is leave Vancouver for a bit. I remembered that you brought up the idea of me staying for a couple weeks at your place when I found the time. Well, I think now is as good a time as any. Would love to catch up with you over a drink. What do you think? Love, Kay. Kay was unattached, bored, recently rejected when she decided to get out of town a while It had been a very long time since Kay had felt stimulated by her life, so there was perhaps something a little exciting about discovering that she could gain some control over things, that she had, in effect, outgrown the scene at home, that she had become wise to the pretensions of the people there, and due to these series of revelations, was capable of not giving a fuck who she offended by leaving. She emailed Charlotte who probably hadn't expected Kay to follow up with an invitation made over a year year ago to stay at her house. But in her reply, Charlotte seemed genuinely excited to show Kay around and introduce her to some people she might vibe with. On the plane there, Kay tried to read. The material she brought with her, however, so lacked in the cathartic release that she was craving that she packed it back into her carry-on within minutes of the plane taking off and turning her body, hunched in the vinyl seat, looked out the plane window for the remainder of the flight, over the aerially flattened landscape before her. She thought about bombs dropping on the mountains, cartoon bombs falling on cartoon mountains out of a cartoon plane, herself a cartoon character, maybe a mouse or a cat. Through this view, she painted the valleys and veils of cloud matter in watercolor. This she did as a placating maneuver over the kind of nausea that tended to affect her recently, a kind of seasickness, the kind that required maneuvering on a roaring sea painted in diluted strokes, waves shifting one after another beneath the surface, chasing each other perpetually. Most mornings, she was barely awake before scenes of disappointment, trifles really, flooded through her waking brain These images mixed with images of the sweet times, somehow inseparable from the times that followed. It's beautiful, and it's all I've got right now, she thought. My ideal and then our connection, which was beyond the particulars of being with a person, it's like an inclination that's larger than it. She listened empty as a vessel to these voices, at which point she would inevitably have to cut them off to rise and shower and make coffee The seasickness usually came later in the day and continued for the night unless she drank, usually back in bed on her laptop after dark. The idea was to capture the sense of unease and discomfort, capture its productivity and contend with an involuntary urge to be sick. Network electronic technologies have removed any limit to what can be done in bed. The plane was making its descent when her thoughts were interrupted by a woman who was in boisterous conversation with another, who, judging by the similarity in their features, was the boisterous woman's sister. I've told him this. You have to treat them like dogs. People. No. Relationships are like dogs. You need the petting. You need the training. You need to love them. But, most importantly, you need to play with them. Uh-huh. Right, that's exactly what I said. When a bitch is in heat, you know she's going to go out and get laid. Bad sexual conduct in the cards. She knew her time was not yet, yet she had really been disappointed this time, and it was time for a change. The other woman looks out the window. She was as thin as her sister was fat, as if all the extra meat had slipped from one sibling onto the other. She looked past Kay god, this city. I love coming home. Look, you can see the Hollywood sign. After the night of the performance, they referred to him only as the Icelander. And in the weeks following, they saw him everywhere. Kay's second day in the city was the first sighting, or the second, counting the performance. She was sitting outside a cat- outside at a cafe, while one of the many small dogs there investigated for food around her chair, thereby wrapping itself in its leash around the legs of her chair. She bent down to liberate the animal, and as she did so, received a wandering lick on her ankle, probably more so for the salt of her sweat than contact with its savior. It was still morning, and already sweat was was dripping down her legs. And there he was, bald, solo. She didn't catch his eye, but it was pretty likely that he recognized her from last night. If that acknowledgement was made, it, was happened, it happened in a non-synchronous episode from the, ta- from the time Kay bent down, at which point the Icelander would have entered the cafe and sat down opposite her, to the moment she sat up to see him sitting across from her, stoically sipping on a cappuccino. Despite this chance meeting, they remained strangers. Neither one made a move to bridge their not knowing each other, even though they were both foreigners visiting the city and were both unaccompanied. In the days following, the Icelander was spotted no less than four times, at a museum, a restaurant, and twice at the same cafe. Actually, seeing him was starting to become an annoyance especially because of how obvious it was that they were floating in mutual circles. Yet something about the circumstances and the figure of the Icelander. Maybe it was his strange performance that prevented them from introducing themselves and therefore bridging the familiarity growing between them. So they both pretended that the repetition of their encounters were no social significance. At the museum, Kay went so far as to sit next to him on a bench facing a Poussin painting. This time, the Icelander did have a companion. A handsome woman with dark features, olive-toned skin. She was impeccably dressed, as was he. They were talking in low voices, inaudible to Kay. She was struck by just how bourgeois he appeared that day. This impression was contrary to the impression she had formed of him from the other night. His act drew out anxiety and hostility from the people, then immediately cured them of it. He was a prodigious and dazzling talker in front of an audience. Okay, he seemed a little more slippery and creepier the further into the act he ventured, but this might be accounted for by the fact that he had been touched by some terrible truth, been struck by some divine lightning. His anger at one point made all that had seemed solid in his argument earlier vanish. Was he a genius? This was the arc followed by those who were witness to this genuinely bizarre event, and now, sitting in front of Poussin, he, l- he looked like just another fashionable member of the globe-trotting creative elite. The party was large and noisy and crowded with people Kay was beginning to recognize since being in LA. There was an imminence, to the sea of people talking over and dancing to the music emanating from the DJ table and everywhere Kay looked, she saw someone who further decorated the scene with an incoherent opulence she felt was universal at these events. Charlotte appeared and offered Kay a drink. Charlotte, exclaimed Kay, embracing her with a kind of affection that she instantly recognized in herself as disingenuous. Charlotte laughed in a way that affected a sympathetic desire to be carefree. Charlotte led her to the bathroom, where a group of women chatting in Spanish adjusted straps, pieces of flesh, and touched-up lips. Kay followed Charlotte into a vacant stall and accepted an amount of white powder that Charlotte procured from her bra and offered to Kay on the end of a key. Emerging again into the party, Charlotte suddenly grabbed Kay's arm. Oh my god, look who's here. Who? Kay asked. Him, Charlotte said. Where are you going? With the courage of vodka soda and certain euphoria-enhancing substances, Kay walked over to the icelander and put her arm on his immense shoulder. You might entirely be a work, your work, and in the end, the work of everything, she found herself blurting out. What? It was too loud for him to hear her, which meant she could continue brandishing this kind of nonsense, and he would simply pick it up as flirting or excitable and engaging speech at best. Do you want to get fucked up, the Icelander said. I think I already am, said Kay. How long are you in L.A.? I'm here for a few more days, then I go to New York. That's what people do when they don't know what else to do. Sorry, what? Go to New York. He laughed at this and asked for her phone. He took Kay's phone out of her hands and entered his contact information. I'm about to leave. These things tire me out in a way I'm not used to anymore. But we should meet. I know this place. I think you know it too. And with that, the Icelander returned her phone and left her to her friends who were dancing a few feet away. Aggressive texting encouraged by Charlotte ended in Kay ringing the doorbell to a house whose address the Icelander sent to Kay at around four in the morning. Her mouth felt rubbery. She was tired and as she moved her head too quickly, her vision started spinning. She was invited into a vast, orange, Spanish-tiled room which opened to a living room, where a woman, who Kay recognized as the Icelanders' companion from the museum, was rolling a joint. Beyond where she sat were sliding glass doors and the blue gleam of a pool. The woman introduced herself. Hi, I'm Monica, she said. Do you want some? Offering Kay the freshly-lit joint. No, thanks. I'm a little too drunk to bring weed into the mix. Kay sat down next to Gunnar. I don't really know what I'm doing here, except that running into you at the party broke down some kind of barrier. So I risked risked inviting myself over. I feel embarrassed. He laughed gently and laid his hand on her knee. That's okay. It's important to go for what you want. I'm glad you decided to come, even though you don't know me. Kay had the vague sense that she had surprised them in a moment of intimacy. I'm really tired, Kay. Monica invited her to lay her head on a pillow on her lap and stroked her hair as Kay found herself passing out in, into one of those alcohol-induced sleeps that set in immediately upon clo- the closing of one's eyes. I'm a lump, a polyp, she thought, and then lost consciousness. Kay awoke again a few hours later to find that she was not on the couch anymore, but in a bed. She was in a bed with Gunnar and Monica, who were asleep in their clothes, as was Kay. Obviously nothing had happened, but Kay felt a little weird about it. Not necessarily because she had passed out drunk at the house of the Icelanders' lady friend. It was more so the vestiges of feeling that she hoped she had left behind in Vancouver, This is the healthiest origin of a sick totalitarianism, she thought. Feelings of jealousy and insecurity fall under every relationship to communion, she realized. What force shames us into fixing our jealousy? What point should she become prey to a foreign will? The woman spooned her that morning, but Kay felt excluded and dumb, like the immobile child or doll to this couple. She woke up brooding and weighed the options of leaving LA. She gathered her bag and shoes and tried to make it to the front door without waking them. But the Icelander heard her moving about and met her at the door. You're leaving? Are you sure you don't want to sleep more? No Gunnar, but thanks. I don't want to sleep anymore. She said to him and walked out into the warm morning air.